Good morning, everybody. Boy, it is a quiet feel this morning, but may the Lord nonetheless speak loudly to us through his word. 1 Corinthians 16, if you would open up there, I will pray and we will get into it. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering here. Thank you again for all the gospel seeds that were scattered yesterday. Lord, we ask that they would come forth and bear fruit of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would even allow us to see some of that fruit in coming weeks and help us to be faithful, to continue to sow, to continue to plant, to continue to water as we wait for you to give the increase. Remind us, Lord, that faithfulness belongs to us and fruitfulness to you, and I pray that our evangelistic temperature in every heart that calls Restore Home would be bumped up degree by degree through this summer so that we are, Lord, um, used by you mightily to make a gospel impact in this zip code. We ask in Christ's name, and now your blessing upon the preaching of God's word, amen. Amen. So we are going to be starting a series in the book of Proverbs two Sundays from today. And uh, if you have a bulletin, you can see it on the back of the bulletin. We are going to be doing some memory work through this series. I just think it would be great for us to hide God's word in our heart. So we're going to start with Proverbs 1, verse 7, which is kind of a commentary, quite frankly, on the entire book at large. I will recite it if you would read it with me, and let's be prepared then to recite it from memory in two weeks. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The name of the series is Wisdom or Folly. There's only two ways to live. So I can't wait to dive into that. I just think it's going to be a super helpful word for us as a church. But today, I've asked you for the 43rd and final time to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, that's right, 43 three times. And as I was reflecting on that this past Monday, preparing for this final and closing message, I was hit by this thought that in a way, this 43rd message marks the end of one season and the beginning of another, a one that we already have, have already stepped into. We started this series, anybody remember what date? You get a steak dinner? It was a long time ago, January 26, 2020. Now, you might say there's been more than 43 Sundays. Well, we stopped and started this series twice. But when we kicked off this series, that January Sunday, 2020, little did we know of the tumultuous times that were about to hit the country at large, um, culture, the larger church, and yes, even specifically our church. So much has happened. I dove into that last week quite a bit. But here we are on the 43rd and final time of opening up 1 Corinthians 16. And if indeed it marks the end of one season and the beginning of another, I can't, I don't think we could find any more appropriate marching orders than what we're going to find in these final verses of 1 Corinthians 16. All I want to do this morning is build upon what we we unpacked last week from the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 16. In fact, if you you didn't hear uh, last week's message, I would invite you to to really uh, spend some time diving into that message, listening to it, because I think there's some important things for us to hear from God from from that passage. Now, um, 
You might, you might remember that I, I, I think I characterize the end of epistles a bit like we think the ends of loaves of bread are like. Maybe nutritious, but come on, not very delicious. I mean, they just kind of read at first blush like laundry lists. So-and-so says hi, go here, do that, don't forget this, remember that, etc., etc. That is until you dive in more deeply, and we should dive into all of God's Word because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we dive into all of it. And as we dive into places like ends of epistles, we actually find they are radically practical and relevant because they show us, they, they, they kind of put, as I put it, shoe leather on our theology. They show us how to walk out our faith in everyday life. So I went through five G's last week. Nothing to do, obviously, with cell reception, but with heart condition. We talked about we are to give to the work of God. We're to give weekly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. We saw that we are to gather with the people of God, not just give to the work of God, but gather with the people of God. He says, when, whenever you feel like it, when your schedule allows, on the first day of the week. And, and I made this statement that if one habitually has a hard time gathering with the people of God, no matter what they confess about Christ, at the end of the day, they might not actually be numbered among the people of God. Then we talked about gospeling, leveraging gospel opportunities. It was so beautiful for us to do that yesterday as a church family. And there will be opposition, as Paul talks about in these verses. Then we talked about grumbling, namely, don't do it, esteem leadership. And I was quite vulnerable speaking just about what pastors and clergy have faced through this season. For that reason, I would invite you to, to, to give a listen to that message if you missed it. And then finally, we talked about God. God is the one who this church belongs to, not any person, not any person, founders, planters, otherwise, it, this is God's church. Well, today we're going to continue and end this section, end this book study, The Gospel Forgetting Church, by looking at five Bs. You probably see it on your outline. Now, a note, we're not talking about moralistic duties, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Rather, we're talking about Christocentric dynamics. In other words, how we are to live out of our position of being made alive in Christ. Five Bs. You all with me? B number one is this. We want to be courageous. You can see that flows right out of verse 13. What Paul does is he stacks one imperative on top of another, four in its entirety, to hammer home this singular point that we ought to be courageous. Be courageous. J.C. Ryle, many, many years ago, said... It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Think about how often as Christians, we're just so prone to imbalance, are we not, in our fallenness? We, we often emphasize one truth at the expense of the other truth. So take how people talk about and, and present Jesus. For some, we should just emphasize 
that he is the lamb of God, you know, gentle and lowly. And others say, oh, no, no, what we really need to emphasize is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, conquering victor. Now, which of those is true? Both. There's that same kind of imbalance Christians can be prone to in how we ought to present ourselves as followers of the lamb and the lion. Some people think that we just really need to be super winsome all the time. And if anyone ever does not like you, it's because you're not being like Jesus. Other people say, oh, no, no, what we really need to emphasize is we need to be stalwarts of the faith. And if anyone ever likes you, you must not be like Jesus. Now, we are called both to be loving, right? That's the next point. But also this point, courageous or soldiering. Loving and soldiering. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, share in sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The writer of Jude says, hey, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. So there's both. There's soldiering and there's lovering. Loving, lovering. That's an invention of a new word. Put that on the list. So let's just kind of look at these imperatives real quickly. Paul says, first of all, be watchful. It could be translated, wake up, be alert, like you're on post, like you're on guard duty. 22 times that expression appears in your New Testament, most every time connected to being alert for the return of Jesus Christ. Point six in our gospel imprint, he is coming back. It's used once to the church at Sardis. Remember, Sardis was starting to fall asleep. And he says, if you don't, here's the expression, wake up, I will snuff you out for good. And then it appears when Jesus is up in the Garden of Gethsemane as the cross is looming over him, and he says to his crew, could you not even be alert or be watchful for one hour? So that's the first expression, be watchful. The second expression is stand firm in the faith. There are going to be times when you're going to be tempted just to sit down when God wants you to stand up. There are going to be times you're going to be tempted to shut up when, in point of fact, God wants you to speak up. We are to stand firm in the faith. And then this third phrase, which is not controversial at all, you can read it, act like men. Now, this is interesting. I just coined a word. Paul coined a word. This is the only time he takes the word for man, andros, and makes it into a verb. He coins it here, andrizomai. He basically is saying, man up. Act like men. Now, some people say he's really using that word generically. You know, like sometimes the Bible says mankind, right? And we know that just means, you know, all humans. 
So they would say, with that understanding of what Paul is writing, that what Paul is saying is, hey, don't act like a baby or a young kid all afraid of the dark. Rather, be strong, be mature, be an adult. Now, I would say to that that there's truth in that. God wants us not to be fearful like little children. He wants us to be adults. And for that reason, because there is truth in that, it's tempting to just leave it at that lest we fall under the indictment of being not culturally sensitive or not politically correct. But I have to tell you, that's not faithful to the text. The word andros is not a generic word that can sometimes be translated like mankind. It is a biological term, and it refers specifically either to a husband or just to a male in general in every usage. Now, there is a word that kind of generically means mankind. Sometimes it means a man biologically, but sometimes it just means mankind. That's the word anthropos. That's in 1 Timothy 2.15, by the way, where he says, for there is only one mediator between God and anthropos, human, humanity, sometimes it's translated that way, the man Christ Jesus. That's not the word here. It's actually the word that always refers to a biological male, a man, a real man. And to preach it otherwise is really to take the edge of, off of what Paul is trying to communicate. So can I just preach it as it is? I like what Alistair Begg said. He can get away with a lot of stuff with that Scottish brogue. He says, let's just cut through all that stuff and say it like it is. And he gives a couple illustrations. What would you think if there was a, a, a couple, man and a woman, they're upstairs, it's 2.14 in the morning, and they hear somebody breaking in a window into their first floor and the woman goes downstairs to check it out. What would you think about that? Just be honest. What would you think about that? I know what I would think about that, and I suspect I know what you would think about that. That man's a coward, right? He's not courageous. Men are supposed to be courageous. Or it's not uncommon. I don't feel like you're with me, and you ought to be on that one. Because I think you all would think that. I would hope you would think that. That's what Paul is getting at. Or it's not uncommon for, um, say, a woman to turn to a man and say, can you unscrew the, the, the jar to this jar of jelly? Because men typically are going to be stronger. Is that right? So we are not saying courage and strength are the exclusive domain of men. Not at all. Any women are courageous and strong. That's what he's telling all of us to be here. He's simply making the point that those virtues, those values are clearly supposed to be associated with men. So what is he saying? Listen to the church. You need to man up. There's got to be courage and there's got to be strength. Act like men. That's what he's getting at, man up. Now, if you're tracking with me, then you should be asking a couple of questions. Number one, so is Paul just talking to men then? Is this a men's conference? Answer, he's writing the whole church, right? This is an epistle for the whole church, so no. So then your second question should be, is Paul just telling women to act like men? Well, not in a certain way, okay? Not like you see today. It was happening in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. He does address 
women dressing up and acting like men and men dressing up and acting like women. And Paul himself, in the Bible at large, sets forth the beautiful virtues of masculinity and femininity. It does. So now I'm scratching my head. What is Paul saying? Paul is simply saying this. Christians need to have the kind of courage and strength that should be, but not always are, but should be associated with men. That's what he's saying. And I saw that, by the way, in men and women on display yesterday at the Virginia Park Plaza. I saw men and women being courageous and strong in the gospel. The ESV Study Bible puts it this way. Act like men is a frequent command in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is simply a Greek translation of the Old Testament from many, many years ago. It frequently occurs in the Septuagint, and it's used in context encouraging people, especially soldiers, to act with courage and strength in obedience to the Lord and with confidence in his power. And that's what the final expression in this stacked up four imperatives says simply, be strong. Seven times in the Old Testament, God tells the people of Israel, be strong. Remember Joshua and all that he had to do with the spies and all the rest and the the people of God at large? All the time he said, hey, be strong. Be strong in the Lord. And the last usage is Psalm 27, verse 1. And I just lost it. But I know you know it, Steve, because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, here it is, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. How? By waiting for the Lord, by looking to the Lord. So what is he saying? Being courageous in the faith. Now, in case we're missing that part in the faith, I want us to be clear that the the thing we're to be courageous about isn't really ourselves, okay? It's the second expression, be strong, or rather stand firm in what? In what? The faith. Did you notice the the there? The the matters. It's a definite article. He's not talking about just any old faith. He's talking about the faith. Or as Jude, as I just quoted, says, the faith once delivered to the saints. He's talking about being strong in the gospel, in the Bible, in a biblical worldview. And according to one study I read, that is not happening more often than not among Christian pastors. Only 41% of senior pastors, according to the study, have a biblical worldview. Among associate pastors, 28%. Now, I don't know how they bifurcated all these various kinds of pastors, but under this study, according, it says teaching pastors. Of all people, you would think they would have a biblical worldview, right? You're the teaching pastor. 13% of teaching pastors have a biblical worldview, according to this study. Youth pastors, they're not much worse, 12%, but that's bad. Executive pastors, 4%. And among all who claim to be a pastor of some kind, only 39% believe in the Bible's definition of truth and morality. So I would say there's a whole lot of people not being courageous, But this is not just about the faith. 
and standing firm in it. This is about your faith in the faith. Does that make sense? Today, there's a lot of talk about deconstruction. We ought to walk with people with with love and clarity and and all of that. But I got to tell you, it's nothing new. God told us about that a long time ago. It's called apostasy. And 1 John 2, 19 gives the ultimate explanation. They went out from among us so that it might be seen they were never really of us. It's been happening since the history of the church. Only now, the internet makes people apostatizing experts, right? As they garner the warm and damning and demonic praise of a world in rebellion to God. That's right. That's right. Thank you. And I have to tell you, I've known such people. You've probably known such people, right? Now, listen to me. They did not stop worshiping. Humans are incurably worshipers. We are always worshiping something. You are never not worshiping. You're never. You will never not have a moment in life where you're not worshiping. It's just a matter of what is the object of your worship. So they didn't stop worshiping. What they did is they stopped worshiping the true and living God. And if they were to do an honest after-action report, it would reveal this, that they started serving other gods long before they ultimately and finally and fully departed from the true and living God. Looking for love in all the wrong places, comfort, identity, security, hope, relief, all of that. Now, watch out. Do you know when people are particularly vulnerable to this? When do you think? Say that again. By themselves, isolation, yeah, is huge. That's why it constantly says in Hebrews, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort yourself, no, but exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ indeed, if indeed we hold fast our confession firm to the end. I wasn't even planning on going there, thanking you. Thank you for that. Isolation. And isolation takes this. This is often what drives us to isolation, and that is adversity. Difficulty, loss, sickness, betrayal, bereavement, unfulfilled expectations, on and on. In that place of darkness is when the enemy does his best work. And we're tempted in that place, as we all have been. We're tempted not to stop worshiping because we'll never stop worshiping. We're tempted to stop worshiping who? The true and living God. Instead, we start worshiping something else. And there could be people here who are not yet apostatized, but you're on the road to apostasy. So, So survey where you're looking. I remember reading this book, uh, uh, it was a book on a kind of a theology of idolatry all through all 66 books of the Bible. There's this statement, what you revere, you will come to resemble, either for your ruin or for your restoration. So we got to go back to Psalm 27 verse 1. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And then you should run to Psalm 73. Who do I have in heaven but you? And beside you, there's nothing I desire on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength of my heart, and you're my portion forever. Are you worshiping Christ right now? Because worshiping Christ, and this is the longest of the five points, so don't have to do the math right now. Trust me, it is. Christ, worshiping, you're always going to worship, right? Compass is always going to point in some direction. Worshiping Christ is the fuel and foundation for being courageous, not just with the faith, but your faith in the faith. Number two. Be loving, verse 14. Alistair Bag, I quote him again, I love it. He says, verse 14 follows verse 13 in case we're tempted to, to go the wrong way on the stuff about being courageous. <laughs> be loving. Look at what it says. Let all that you do be done how? In love, in agape, in sacrificial love. Let sacrificial love Drive all that you do. Sacrificial, and this is a hard one for all of us, not transactional. I want you to think about how the church treated and despised Paul. They didn't treat him too good, did they, this church, Corinth? They mocked him. They, I mean, they made fun of his physical features. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians. Uh, they, they did not esteem him. They grumbled against him. And yet, Paul, who wrote 13 epistles... Okay, 13 inspired epistles. This is the only epistle to this church who was backhanding him. This is the only church that he explicitly affirms his agape love for. It's, it's how the letter ends. Look at it. My, verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? I mean, we'd be more prone to say that to a church that was really you know, giving us some love, right? And yet he says that to them. And actually, you remember how he begins the letter? He begins the letter with glowing commendation. I mean, he's about to he's whoop up on them. He's taking them to the woodshed in this book. But he begins by saying, I love you. You're a bunch of stubborn knuckleheads, but I love you. Now, family, how hard is this? I don't have the strength for that, somebody says. And I would say, I don't have the strength for this either. But notice the words in verse 24, my love be with you, not amen, but my love be with you in Christ Jesus, amen. It's only through and in light of his agape love for us can we begin then to reflect that. So again, your only hope in truly being loving is first and foremost by worshiping Jesus Christ. Only when you're worshiping Jesus, that's the secret sauce, if, if there is a secret sauce, and there is, it's him to loving others. Only then will you have the giddy up to get after loving people who are not so loving in response. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Third of all, he says, this, this is the takeaway, third point, be devoted. 
What we're going to see in verses 15, 16, and the following verses is that conversion is followed by devotion and service. So there's true conversion, then there's devotion and service as part of that devotion. He's talking about the household of Stephanus, the first converts in Achaia. He says, now I urge you, brothers, verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. You see that right there. They were the first converts, and then they were devoted to service. One of the signs of true conversion is that, is that someone doesn't just pray a prayer and then disappear. Rather, they now want to serve. What can I do? Where can I help? What do you need are the sweet cries of a newborn babe in Christ. When I see someone confess Christ and then they want to serve, that's always a really good sign. What's interesting to add on to that is that it seems the conversion of these people had been years earlier than the writing of this. And yet, their devotion to service had not yet faded. It hadn't waned. So a question that I'm asking myself, and I invite all of us to ask, is this. Has your devotion and your service waned or grown? Especially in this last season that we're coming out, this tumultuous season. Has your devotion to service waned or grown? As we move into this new season, what would it look like to renew your devotion to service? And the really cool way about how God works is as we do that, he often does a deeper renewal in our own soul than when we're standing there waiting for him to change how we feel before we jump back in the fray. That's where he meets us. There's a Chinese saying that goes like this. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. I'll add hunting to that. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. Maybe that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And blessed has the idea of being filled to the overflow with joy and satisfaction. Be devoted. Number four, be invested. And what we mean here by invested is what we see is Paul and all these other people were clearly invested in community. We can see this on the macro level, interchurches, and in the local level, a specific church. Paul mentions five names. He just mentioned Stephanus. Now he adds this, verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give my recognition to such people. Now, it's interesting that Fortunatus and Achaicus, it seems most people believe they were uh, slaves who had been freed. 
Not, not by government edict, that's how often people are freed from slavery, but here they were manumitted, which means uh, their, their owners freed them. And they say that's why Fortunatas was called that. He was fortunate or lucky to be freed. And Achaicus, that was probably the province he was set free in. But here's my point in noting that. It reminds us that the church is not about earthly position or income level or social status or ethnicity. It says in Galatians 3.28, this is what it's about. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, but Christ is all and in all. Which then means we need to look at each other primarily as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that we don't notice other things, but that's not the primary thing. Gentleman named Mark, I spoke with for probably 40 minutes yesterday, and uh, he was a former Marine, uh, had seen some terrible things in, in Vietnam. We talked for quite a while, and at first he was like, I'm never going to go to a church because, because all you want is our money. And by the end of it, he says, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and come out uh, one Sunday. And, and, and he said, I've never really belonged to, to, to anybody. He said, look at me. I'm half black, I'm half white. I don't feel like I've been fully accepted by whites. I don't feel like I'm fully accepted by blacks. And I, I just feel like I don't have a family. And then later on he says, is that, is that all the people at Restored Church? I said, yeah, and all kinds of people. And he noticed the love going back and forth between people, and that's what turned the lever in his heart. He says, you know what, I think I might want to come join you one day. And we talked a lot after that, and I was able to talk about the gospel. And it, it was an incredible conversation. He saw us as we ought to see ourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you have this. Another, oh, by the way, another lady, I made a note about this this morning. She, remember that older lady with, with the shopping cart? It was there like an hour and a half waiting for a ride, and we asked her if we could help her get home. She said to me, I don't think her eyesight was real good. She said, is that all your family? And uh, I said, kind of, yeah, that's, that's, we're family, brothers and sisters in Christ. She noticed that. Then in verse 19, he mentions the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house. The, this couple hosted a church in their home. And archaeologists have told us that, that many houses in that day before Christianity became a legal religion, before it became religio licitia, before that it was illicit, it was illegal, that people would have their houses structurally remodified, in some cases to hold up to 60 people. That's where they met. Now, the question we want to answer is, okay, these names were invested. What's involved in being invested? If I were to be invested, what would that look like? What would the effect be? So let's just take these words at face value. Verse 16, be subject to such as these. There's submission. That's what Paul tells them to do with the people coming to serve the church at Corinth. Submit. Verse 17 and 18, there's this. I rejoice at the coming, and he mentions their, their names, because they have made up for your absence, for they, verse 18, refreshed me. There would be rejoicing and refreshing. Verse 19, we just saw it with Aquila and Prisca. There would be hospitality. They opened their house, and by the way, it seems they opened their house when, when uh, Paul came to plant the church as a tent maker in Corinth. They hosted him at their house. And then there's just greetings all over. So-and-so greets, the churches greet you, all the brothers in Asia greet you. There's greeting. Now look at this expression, the last one of verse 20. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. The one another, by the way, doesn't that remind us of all the one another commands in Scripture? Pray for one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, you know, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. It reminds us of this very dynamic of being invested in community. But he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and, and listen, that might mean a warm handshake. It might mean a warm hug. It, it might mean a bow towards each other. Whatever it is that's, that's culturally appropriate, the idea is this, that we're excited to see each other, that we warmly greet each other. Listen, we're coming out of a season in which investment has been significantly decreased in the church, across the church. As we move into a new season, we need to shake off where it is apathy. We need to shake off unfaithfulness and indifference and disconnectedness and re-embrace biblical investment in community. And then finally, verse 22, be sure. What's that about? That doesn't seem to be consistent with the other points. What I mean to say is be sure of where you stand with the Lord. So Paul ends this letter. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? And Paul does say some really strong things in this letter, but actually, he is just being salvifically honest, is he not? If you really are a Christian, you really will love the Lord, right? And by the way, one of the reasons uh, the deal with Judas is in Scripture, as one guy pointed out, is to show us that sometime an outward display of show of affection for Jesus might not actually sh reveal true love. He didn't have any real love for the Lord. So do you love Christ for what he's done for you? Is he changing, true love for Christ does, your disobedience, even if sometimes so slowly, but changing your disobedience into obedience? 1 John 5 says, and this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Is your love for the Lord changing your whateverness into worship? Crown him with many crowns? Is it changing your deadness into delight? If any man does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. And then this final expression, our Lord, come. The first word is anathema. This word is this is a, one of the places in the New Testament where instead of being Koine Greek, it's Aramaic. And Aramaic, it would read like this. Marantha, our Lord comes, or Lord come. It's either a declaration or a plea. Those who love the Lord long for his return. Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a wordplay going on. Anathema, a marantha. 
There's two choices. Which is it for, for you? Is it, is it anathema? Are you cursed because you have no real love for the Lord, therefore no real saving faith? Or do you long for his return? Anathema. To such people, verse 23, belongs the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. So as we move into a new season, we're really into it, but as we step deeper into it, we need to be courageous. Courageous. We need to be loving. We need to be devoted. We need to be invested. And it all starts with being sure. These are not moralistic duties, but Christocentric dynamics that flow out of knowing and following Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this 43rd and final time in this awesome and hard book of 1 Corinthians. I ask, Father, that you would let your word land swiftly, decisively, transformatively on every heart here in a tailor-made fashion. For those who are not being courageous, Lord, would they, they be strong in the Lord and in the faith. And for those who have moved past that to not being strong in their faith in the faith, Lord, I pray that you would arrest that decline. They might lie, lay hold of you. And say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Pray for those who, for all of us, Lord, who also need to be loving, loving, loving. We so often are not sacrificial but transactional. Worldly love versus cross-centered love. Help us by, by, by ravishing our hearts with your love, for showing us how much we're loved. And God, I pray, I pray that we would be devoted to service, Lord, People who have backed off would step in or be invested in community, Lord, because we don't, as Arpith so soundly reminded us, we cannot walk in isolation and, and, and spiritually prosper. We just can't. Now, Father, help us to be sure. I pray for the one here who maybe has been coached in saying the right things but has no saving interest in Christ, that even as we sing, they would, they would call upon Christ. And Lord, that we would have the privilege of hearing about that and celebrating that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your agape love for us. Now we just want to celebrate it a little bit more before we walk out and seek to live it out by the power of the Spirit. Amen.